0: The novel by Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities, is well known for many reasons, not the least of which is its opening line. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. I was thinking this week that that line could actually apply to different things, such as relationships. If we're honest with ourselves about relationships, we can sometimes say they are the best and they are not the best, (laughs) because they cause us at times deep consternation and challenge. It's those realities that a lot of people think about and some have been at work with. For example, uh, comedians and journalists and thinkers want to share a few comments with you here from several of them. The actress and comedian Phyllis Diller said, I want my children to have all the things I couldn't afford, and then I want to move in with them. Or what about the newspaper columnist Irma Bombeck who said, when your mother asks, do you want a piece of advice, it's a mere formality. It doesn't matter if you say yes or no, you're going to get it anyway. <laughs> Probably true. The, the American comedian Chelsea Handler said, obviously if I was serious about having a relationship with someone long-term, the last people I would introduce them to would be my family. <laughs> Some of you may have felt like that. Or what about an unknown premillennial Who wrote this respect your parents these guys pay for your internet (laughs) and finally Prince William who has been in the news of late said as I learned in my years growing up don't mess with your grandmother (laughs) probably right Prince so the reality is at times it can be extremely wonderful and at times it can be extremely challenging. So in this series, series we're going to wade into those issues that are relational, family relationships. This is a different kind of series. This is a back-to-school series. So this is officially the beginning of the school year for Loma Linda University. I know there are those out there who are study, students at Loma Linda who say, wait a second, I've been going to school all summer. Well, that's true. But officially, this is the first weekend of the year for school. So our series is a back-to-school series. So throughout the series at different times, we'll have quizzes. We'll often have assignments, maybe some reading. So that's our back-to-school series on relationships. Now, this week, as I was thinking about the things that I've been planning now for quite some time to present, I went around my office and began to pull books off the shelf, books that will help to inform what we're talking about here. I just got a half dozen or so. There are many more. The Family Covenant by Dennis Guernsey, a bit of an older book now, but an outstanding book the heart of commitment scott stanley doing excellent research on commitment and also stanley and his colleagues a lasting promise a christian guide to fighting for your marriage a lot of good content about conflict in marriage tim keller his books a bit dated now there'll be some aspects you'll agree with and others you want but the meaning of marriage has some profoundly biblical thoughts to consider and then a theologically titled book how to avoid marrying a jerk <laughs> um, <laughs> Maybe one some of you will be interested in. Actually has some very good content by John Van Epp. And then finally this one. I pulled this one off the shelf. This book, The Family, A Christian Perspective on the Contemporary Home, Jack and Judith Balswick from down at Fuller Theological Seminary, now quite some time ago retired. This book has been around a long time. I looked back at the published date, and it was 1989. Yeah, my mother gave this to me as a birth gift when i was born and uh... It, it's been it's been a very good book it now has come out for a fifth edition this is a book that is a textbook but it is from this book that we're going to draw our theological model for family relationships so jack and judith Balswick. now this series has one question At the center of it, only one question. In fact, everything we do throughout this series is seeking an answer to this one question. And that one question is, what does it mean to live as a disciple in my family relationships? You could state that other ways. As a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Christ, what difference does that make in my family? What does it mean to be a Christian family? In fact, if I belong to a Christian family, how is that different from another family next door or across the street? The whole series is trying to answer that question. What does it mean to live as a disciple in family relationships? Now, we're going to build everything we say on two premises Because, by the way, I have to mention this. Another book I pulled off the shelf was this one. Have you seen this one? I hope so. Um, But you know something when you take Scripture and you start talking about family. You almost intuitively know I can't take the examples of many of the marriages or families in Scripture as my model. You know, almost intuitively, I cannot take a proof text approach to family in Scripture. Because if we do that, we'll end up with some things that will get us arrested. You'll end up with a husband with many wives. You'll end up with the firstborn being prioritized over all the other children. You'll end up with with parent-arranged marriage, which makes the young adults among us want to run screaming out of the room and the parents stand up and sing the doxology. I mean, you'll end up with some things that are very strange. So, you know, intuitively, we have to take a different kind of approach other than a proof text approach. A theological approach is what's required. And that's what we're going to do. And so, this theological approach is based on two premises. The first is how God in the Old Testament treated his children, Israel. That's a family metaphor. How God in the Old Testament treated his children, Israel. God is parent, Israel is child. Family metaphor. The second is how Christ in the New Testament. Treats his bride, the church. Another family metaphor. How does Christ treat his bride, the church? So if we're going to answer a theological question, what does God's family have to offer us, we're going to pay attention to those two realities in a special way. Now, suppose we were to say, which some of us have over the years, but with an added part of it, we were to say we're going to read through the Bible together this year all of us. And as we read on the journey, we're going to make notes of any concept we encounter that would be descriptive of how God as parent, how Christ as groom treats their family. So we all do that. Then at the end of the year, we come and we lay out all of our lists. Some of the lists are long, some are shorter. We start looking for carryover and crossover, which are the same ones on every list. I want to suggest to you, that if we have done a faithful job of reading and keeping track that on every list there will be at least four concepts they will appear on every list so the first one would be something called covenant that's present throughout scripture the second one is a concept called grace again you can't read the biblical text without encountering grace The third is a concept called empowerment. Now, in all honesty, I'm not certain that the word empowerment, maybe in some of the newer versions, appears, but the concept is everywhere. And finally would be the word intimacy. In other words, if we've been faithful with the text, whatever else we might include from our reading, we would have at least those four. And so with those four realities in place, We want to build a model. What does this look like in God's interaction with his people, with his family? So we're going to draw the model this way. We're going to draw it in a circular fashion because these concepts interact with each other, and we're going to recognize that it begins with the concept called covenant. You can't read the Bible. You can't get six chapters in for sure some might argue three chapters in without encountering the concept of covenant it's present throughout the entire biblical narrative chapter six god to Noah, i'm gonna make a covenant with you later in the same book god to abraham i'm gonna make a covenant with you and that continues throughout the biblical narrative so what is a covenant a covenant is a pact a promise an agreement by two parties to come together and have a relationship that is deep and meaningful and lasting. And that is what God is inviting his family into. Now, covenant is a big theme in Scripture, and there is much that could be said. In fact, I can tell you from personal experience, theologians write large books, large dry books on covenant. I want to encourage you to remember just two things when it comes to God's covenant with his family. The first one is that God's covenant with his family is based on God's unconditional love. God's covenant with his family is based on God's unconditional love. That's the foundation. That's what undergirds the covenant. If anyone asks you, how did you get to be the right to be a part of that family of God, as you call it? There's a one-word answer, love. God's love, God's unconditional love. In fact, there are moments... When God will say, for example, to the children of Israel, don't think it's because you're better than or bigger than or more beautiful than or more anything else than the other nations that I've chosen you to be my family and thus to be the conduit of my love and grace to the other nations of the world. Don't think it's because of that. You were the smallest, least attractive. He doesn't say that, but it's implied, I think. But it was because of my love. It's because I love you. That's why. Now, as you read the biblical account, there is passage after passage that will underline the reality of God's love, his unconditional love. I think maybe the most beautiful one, the one that I find the most powerful, is the one that Paul pens in Romans 8. In Romans 8, he has talked about the reality of this planet on which we suffer. He says the suffering is so heavy that we are bowed beneath it, bent beneath the load. We are groaning to be delivered. But then when he comes to the end of the chapter, it's as though he says, don't think that's because God doesn't love you. Don't think that. Because in spite of all of that that I've just said, he said, I am nevertheless persuaded That neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing you can do to make him love you more. There is nothing you can do to make him love you less. He cannot stop loving because, as John will tell us, that is core to the essence of who God is. That's what undergirds the covenant, the foundation upon which God's family is built, God's unconditional love. That's the first thing to remember. Second thing to remember is that God's covenant with his people and his love that undergirds it is unilateral in nature at least in the beginning in other words it moves in one direction it comes from God to us throughout the scripture again that is underlined it's what theologians call the divine initiative God makes the first move an example Zacchaeus this man who when you read his story you say okay this is a story about a man who is determined to find Jesus He will do anything, fight any crowd, fight any sense of social shame or embarrassment. He will run anywhere he can. He'll climb any tree in the neighborhood. He is determined to find Jesus. And then you say, and his search is rewarded. That's what this story is about. And then you read the last verse of the story. You know what it says? It's Jesus' words. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. It's almost as though Jesus is saying, you thought this was a story about Zacchaeus seeking me? No, no, no. This is a story about me seeking Zacchaeus. It's the divine initiative. God makes the first move. We love him because he what? First loved us. God's covenant is unilateral in the beginning. Now clearly, the desire is that it will become bilateral that we will respond, that there will now be a relationship forged between God and his family in which both sides are committed, both sides love, both sides heed the boundaries of the covenant. No question that's the desire, but please understand this. Whether or not we ever respond or whether we respond and mess it up does not change the unconditional nature of God's love. Covenant. God says, we're in this together. I'm for you. It's based on my love. Now, there's something we have to understand about covenants. You know, they say there's only two, there are only two guarantees in life, death and taxes. I want to add a third guarantee in this context. And it's this guarantee. If a covenant relationship involves sinful human beings, so, for example, you have God and his family, or you have two spouses, or you have parents and children, or you have siblings, if there is a covenant relationship that includes sinful human beings, here's the guarantee. Something will go wrong. Something will go wrong. Guaranteed. In fact, think about it in the story of God and His people. Moses leads them out of Egypt on the way to Canaan. They come to Mount Sinai where God is going to ratify the covenant. God descends. The mountain shakes, rattles, and rolls. The people said, look, we're ready to say I do, but please, you go deal with it. And this is way too scary for us. So Moses climbs the mountain. And there engages with God over issues of covenant and exodus and other whatever else they discussed. But about six weeks into this, God says to Moses, look, you better get down the mountain. That people of yours that about six weeks ago said I do, they're doing it with the neighboring gods. What's wrong with these people? They've already violated the covenant. And Moses is furious. Understand, that kind of action at some level is guaranteed if a covenant involves sinful human beings. Now, maybe it'll be more superficial. Maybe that that goes wrong will just be there's disappointment. This isn't what I expected it to be. Or maybe it's a bit deeper. There's disheartenment. Man, I'm not sure I can keep doing this. Or maybe it's even deeper yet. It's disillusionment. I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't stand this. This is totally wrong. Or maybe it's the deepest level of all, betrayal, outright betrayal. I don't know at what level it will happen, but when you have a covenantal relationship, guaranteed something will go wrong. You understand what that means? I've had the sacred, wonderful privilege of officiating at weddings over the years. And, and it's a delight and a joy. You know, I get to stand pretty close to the bride and the groom. They're right here in front of me, so I, you know, shh, sh- sh- and chew gum and and all the rest but there they are they're close enough that I can watch what happens on their faces in their eyes and when that unfolds I see joy and excitement and love and there's romance in the air and the promise of all that is to come over all the coming years as they stand there and they say I do to each other I do gotta get that right don't say do I that'll mess everything up it's I do And when I stand there and watch them say, I do, I don't say this, but I usually think this. I don't think this beautiful, precious couple has any concept of what that means today. Because if they did, it would make them weak at the knees. But amidst all the joy and celebration, I can say one thing. This relationship, this love you have, will take you to deeply painful places. Guaranteed. The mother and father who clutch that newborn to their breasts, loving that baby like they've never loved anyone or anything before, I would never raise it at that time. But do you know what the truth is? As the years pass, that baby will take them to dark and difficult places at times. Because the reality is, any covenantal relationship that involves sinful human beings will have something go wrong. So what does God do? In God's family, how does God respond? The simple reality is that God responds with this act called grace. Grace. God says grace is available. And that grace issues forth time and again in something called forgiveness. That's what God does. He says grace is available. If my love is unconditional, my grace is unlimited. It's fully and freely available to you as much and as many times as you need it. It is inexhaustible in supply. Again, we could go to so many passages in Scripture. I think one of the most beautiful ones is the one that John penned in his first epistle. John, who knew what it was to disappoint the family, as it were. To violate the relationship, John, who took out his pen and said, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's how God treats his family. Forgiveness full and free. What does grace mean? Well, grace could mean you don't get what you deserve, or grace could also mean you get treated much better than you ever deserve to be treated. Grace means that as well. The late Gary Smalley tells, told the story about coming home from work one day. He had had a bad day. He was already in a bad mood. He had one of those days, I've had a couple of them even this week, where you, where you go to work and, and the pile seemed like you could never get through it. You spend hours and hours at it. At the end of the day, you look at it and say, what happened here? This grew. Instead of going down. Things just aren't, I can't get it all done. You go home, you're tired, you're wondering how to. Small, says, I came home and I was that way that day. My kids knew they could come into my office, they could use my stuff, but they had to put it back. They had to have it cleaned up by the time I got home. I walked into my office already in a bad mood and there's my daughter, I forget, 10, 12 years old. And it's a total wreck, total mess, stuff everywhere, just a disaster. And he said, it just set me off. And I just, I said, what are you doing? You know exactly what the rules are. What are you doing in here? You got to clean this up and get out. And he he said, I just lambasted her. I'm not proud of it, he said, but that's what I did. And his daughter looked at him, surprised at first, but then pain in her eyes. And then she got up and she walked over to her dad and she wrapped her arms around him. And she said to him, oh, daddy, You must have had an awful day at work. (laughs) 10, 11, 12 years old. I don't know what you call that. I call that grace. Being treated far better than you deserve to be treated. God does that with his family. But that's not all God does. Because we both know that we don't want to keep running into the same pothole on our way from home from work every day. We don't want to do that. Smalley doesn't want to come home every other day and another blow-up and another daddy must have had a bad day, as good as that is. You don't want to just keep doing that, doing that, sin and repent, sin and repent, sin. You want to grow. And God wants us to grow. He wants us to grow toward maturity in Christ. And so with his family, God says, all right, you want to grow? You need to grow? I have something called empowerment. Empowerment that says you will be able to grow and change and develop and mature in directions that you did not believe were possible. you really want to be having the same fight 10, 15, 20 years from now? It's one of the stunning things. I was a young hoped to be marriage and family therapist, getting my hours. And I had this couple that was old enough to be my parents, and I thought, what am I doing in this room? And they were very upset back and forth about a fight they had had, and I was thinking, what am I going to do? When one of them said something that pulled me up short, and I said, "Wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. When did this, the incident they had, when did this happen? They said, 25 years ago. And at that point, I said, oh, dear Jesus, please help me. Because I'd been married like three years. There's no way we can be doing that. We don't want to do that. We want to grow. And God wants us to mature. One of the, I mean, this is one of the greatest places this is shown in Scripture. So Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he writes a couple verses that we have quoted many times many times and we have misquoted it many times and it's a verse where where it says that god can do immeasurably more than we ask or think or even hope for i have heard those words quoted as a promise for what god will do for your business for what god will do for your grades for what god will do for your football team or whatever he'll do immeasurably more than you ever ask or think that is not what paul is saying He's writing to a church that is deeply divided between Jew and Gentile, and he is telling them Christ has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He has made you one, and you can almost see the Ephesian people saying, "Well, he, Paul hadn't been here, and he doesn't come here if he's going to say stuff like that." Because if there's anything we're not, it's one. And then Paul, after unpacking theologically what is true of their church. Then he says about what God can do for them as family. Then Paul says this Now to Him, that is Christ, now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, how? according to his power that is at work within us. Do you know what that is? That's empowerment, his power at work within us. He will do immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine, Paul says, in this church. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's what God offers your family. I'm not saying he can't do stuff with your business, your grades, or whatever. But in this context, he wants to grow you to maturity. That's Paul's next topic in Ephesians. In your family, he can do immeasurably more than you ask or even imagine. That's empowerment. I remember this young pastor about 26 years old, pastoring in Texas, had a woman who came to our church, who wanted to join, was in desperate shape in her home, her husband had gotten into the bottle and couldn't get out of it. And every time he consumed the fiery liquid, it just set loose the rage within him. And it was becoming dangerous. She was fearful, possibly deadly. But they had kids. Is there anything you can do? I had no idea what I was doing. Just a young pastor. I wasn't even married. So trying to figure out and getting help from church members. And finally, someone told me, you've got to get him into detox. And that's going to be hard make a long story short he finally agreed and i was taking him there that day on the drive he was shaking and anxious he said stop the car stop the car stop at that 711 my my better thought said don't but i was worried about him so i stopped he raced in bought a can of beer guzzled it got back in and and was a bit calmer he went into detox and now the countdown began i got 30 days to figure out what next Then it was that a gentleman wasn't even a member of our church, was attending a Revelation seminar. said, look, I've heard the talk around here. I know what's happening. When you get him out, get him in your car, don't stop anywhere. I'll be waiting for you here at the church. I got some friends. We got a group. We call ourselves AA. I'll meet him. I'll never forget driving up in front of that church and seeing that man standing there waiting Watching them embrace, tearfully embrace. A few weeks went by before I saw my gentleman again. And when I did, if I were to use words from Scripture, I would say he was clothed and in his right mind. With a gleam of hope in his eyes. It would not be an unbroken journey upward, but the journey had begun, and he was being empowered to grow toward maturity in Christ, which would profoundly affect his home. Now, I want to ask you to think about something. Just think about the God of whose family you are a member. He says to you, I want you and my family. I want a covenant relationship with you, and it is based on my unconditional love. That's the reason you get a ticket in. Nothing you've done or failed to do, you are here because of my love. Furthermore, I know you'll blow it. You will blow it at times. And I want you to know before it even happens, grace is available. But I also want you to know that you can grow, you can develop, you can change. You don't have to keep having the same fight the rest of your life. You can become someone new and different. Now just think about that for a minute. Just let that settle in. I suspect that you might have the same response I have every time I allow that to happen. You know what that is? I say... I want to know a God like that. I want to be a fart, a part, pardon me, not that. I want to be I... that happens in families too, by the way. I want to be a part of a family like that. I want to know God intimately. I want God to know me intimately. That's what I desire. In fact, I think one of the greatest Psalms in Scripture, Psalm 139, I love that Psalm. If I were naming the Psalms, I would name this one, He Knows My Name. Because throughout that Psalm, David is saying, From womb to tomb, God knows all about me. He knows me intimately. And yet, even so, the last two verses in that Psalm, here's what David says Search me and know my heart test me and know my character show me if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting so david even after having confessed that god knows all about him still throws open the chambers of his soul and says i want to be known so well by you that i will know things that that i couldn't even know about myself without you telling me that kind of intimacy God desires in his family. Now, the reality is these concepts interact with each other. For example, consider this. Suppose you're a freshman, sophomore, dental, medical, PT student, and you're stressed out. You're you're married pretty young, pretty early marriage, And now both of you are in school, and you have no time for each other, and it's stressed, and you're on each other and fighting, and it's just really tough. And then your in-laws call you and say, we have paid for both of you. You have a three-day weekend coming up. We have paid for you three nights at the Ritz-Carlton in Laguna Niguel, and here's 500 bucks to spend. Go and enjoy. And you say, wow, praise the Lord and show me the money. And so you get to go that weekend. You get away. It's a wonderful weekend. There's very little stress and tension. It just kind of oozes out of you, all that pressure. You have very little conflict. You just have a wonderful time. You go out to eat. You sleep in. You make love. You walk on the beach. It's a great weekend. And then comes Monday afternoon and you're coming up the ninety one and you know what's at the end of that journey and you're thinking why didn't Ellen White have her vision and Dana point and say this is the place anyway I digress so you're coming back up here I would suggest you're aware of a couple of things the first thing of which you are aware is the intimacy you have shared A deepened level of intimacy and joy and connection and bondedness that's very precious to you. But if you think about it, you will also be aware of something else. And that is that that experience of intimacy has deepened your covenant commitment. Because covenants and commitments deepen out of experiences like this. So now you are more deeply committed than you were before. But that deepened covenant commitment will lead to a deepened need for grace. Because who has the greatest ability to hurt you? Is it the neighbor down the street or the spouse that shares your bed? Who will need your grace the most profoundly? It will be anyone whom you have allowed into the inner circle. Jesus, last night on earth, last supper, John's gospel, they're around the table. It appears from what John presents that the beloved, John the beloved is on Jesus' right, leaning into Jesus' chest, and on Jesus' left is Judas Iscariot. Jesus is leaning into his chest. This is Jesus' inner circle. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. It's like an electrical current goes through the group. Am I the one? Am I the one? And then apparently Peter motions to John, ask him. So John leans back and says, Lord, who is it? If I had been in Jesus' place and John is saying to me, Lord, who is it? I would probably have gone. Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he did this rather bizarre thing. He says, it is the one to whom I will give the sop after I've dipped it in the cup, tears off the bread, dips it in the cup, and gives it to Judas. Judas, which some scholars say that was an act stating publicly, this is my nearest and dearest friend. Much like the best man or the maid of honor giving the toast at the reception. And then Jesus says something to Judas which the others apparently can't hear because when Judas gets up and leaves, they say, where did he go? I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe he sent him to buy something. They're uncertain of what just happened. Jesus is protecting him, shielding him, while at the same time publicly saying, you are my near and dear friend. I don't know what you call that. But I call that not only grace, but a deepened grace because the betrayal is profound because you're part of the family, a deep part of it. And do you know what that does? Experiences like that, if we allow them to, will deepen the ability of others to empower us and of us to empower them in our own families. Because I'll be honest with you, it means so much to me When one of you at times will come up afterwards and say, you know, God blessed me today through what you said. Scripture spoke to me. That warms my heart. That's an answer to prayer. But I'll have to tell you, what really empowers me is when a woman named Anita Roberts, who knows me, good and bad, light and dark, easy and hard, morning breath and all, when she knows, I won't refer to earlier things in the sermon, when she knows me fully and completely and then says, God used you today to speak to my heart. There is nothing empowering like that because it's from the one with whom we experience intimacy that empowerment can be the most profound. And when those moments happen, you know what happens next? There's a deeper intimacy created, which deepens the covenant, which deepens the need for grace. My conviction is that when we are finally and fully in the presence of God, whatever the taglines and names of the Qualities may be, we will grow ever and always toward a deeper and a more mature covenant throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity because that's how God treats his family. That's what it means to be a part of his family. And so when we face the question, what does it mean to be a Christian family? What does it mean to be a disciple in family relationships? How do we live? Maybe the first step should be, well, how does God treat his family? What have I received because I'm part of his family? Maybe that's the first place to begin. Friends, we're just taking the first step. There are many questions to come. But I have two assignments for you this week based on the step we've taken today. Here's assignment number one. Assignment number one, this afternoon at 4 o'clock in the new ministry building, Dr. Barbara Hedandas will lead out in our first covenant conversation. Every Sabbath afternoon at 4, we will have covenant conversations which seek to unpack and enlarge the themes with which we're dealing. That's the first assignment. Join that covenant conversation. Second assignment is this. Go home today and talk to a family member that has hurt you, from which you feel alienated, maybe who even rode in the car with you to church today and express love and extend grace. Express love and extend grace. Maybe you say, you don't understand. It's very complicated. I get that. We'll get there. But for now, express love, and extend grace because that's what God has done for us. Freely we have received. Now freely we give. Because you're going to need help in doing that, we're going to pray as we end. Gracious God, it's stunning to consider what is true because we're part of your family. Lord, we cannot thank you sufficiently, but we pray that as we experience the realities of being your children, your bride, that we will extend those realities to our children and our beloved. We pray that you would do that. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.